the question, are you a born-again Christian? Have you been born again? Maybe for some of you that raises in your mind the question, uh, what does that even mean? If I were to ask you to turn to a blank spot in your worship folder, and write an answer to the question of what does it mean to be born again? What would you put down? How would you, how would you explain it? How would you describe it? Is saying that, that you're a born again Christian, is that just another way of saying a, a true Christian? Uh, does it mean uh, a deeply committed Christian? Does it say something about how closely you follow the rules of being a Christian? Right? You know what the rules are. Don't drink, smoke, or chew. Or go with girls that do. Right? You know this. I think this idea of being born again has a ton of baggage associated with it, especially in the Bible Belt. And I feel like I need to say it with a twang even. Like I need to make again have three syllables. Right? Are you born again? (laughs) And along with that baggage comes a whole heap of misunderstanding. I know just from talking to folks, I started to, I came very close to standing out in front of Walmart yesterday afternoon with a clipboard and just asking 20 random people, what do you think it means to be born again? It was too hot yesterday to actually go do that. But I know what they would have told me because I've heard so many different and interesting explanations for what it means to be born again. But y'all, this is something that we really need to get right. Because whatever it is, whatever it, whatever being born again is, the Bible places a great deal of importance on it. John Boyd was here a few weeks back and brought us two uh, sermons out of John 3. That's a passage we'll look at sometime in this series. But right, two of those verses right there out of, out of John chapter 3 show us just a, a taste of this importance. You must be born again, Jesus said. You must. You must be born again. And if you're not born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. So it seems pretty important. Essential, even. Um, Sinclair Ferguson, now retired pastor, great scholar. He was at the first church in uh, in Columbia uh, toward the end of his career. 
he said this about being born again. It's perhaps the most crucial doctrine of all. For it paves the way for all other doctrines. And so that's why that importance, that essential nature of this, that's why we're going to spend the next several weeks seeking to answer the question, what does it mean to be born again? What is the new birth? To phrase it slightly differently. Why is it necessary? What, what does it do? And so that's our topic for the next several weeks. Probably six to eight weeks. We've got several passages that we're going to look at along the way that will help us answer the questions that we have about what it means to be born again. And so I'm going to do my best to let each passage that we look at speak for itself and try not to have us turn to 30 different places each sermon. So that means I'm going to have to be a little patient. You're going to have to be a little patient. We're not going to answer every question that pops into your mind this morning about what it means to be born again this morning. I hope we'll begin to answer some and next week and week after that layer on a little bit more. So if I get to the end of this message this morning and say, oh, but you didn't say this or this or this, right? chances are that's coming from one of the other passages that we'll deal with. So I've got to try to be patient. I would ask that you do the same. This week's passage is probably not the first passage that you would have thought of when it comes to this topic. But I think it's helpful because it helps answer one of those first questions of, of, of why is it necessary? Right? Why is a, a new birth even, even necessary? And so this passage, I believe, uh, helps lay down a, a real good foundation for the need for being born again. Why, why, why is it a must? Why must we be born again? So uh, if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the Word of God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. May God bless the teaching and the preaching and the receiving and the taking in of His inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative Word. Let's pray together. Oh God, would You help us once again 
this week especially as we begin a new topic to consider, a new aspect of Your graciousness toward us, this most essential doctrine as some have called it. Would You help us understand Your Word rightly? Holy Spirit, would You come and would You cast Your light on this passage? Would You shine Your light deep down into the very recesses of our hearts that we might listen but also hear, that we might see but that we might really see what's here, that we might know and more than knowing might we be changed by what we find. We pray that You do so by the, by the powerful name of Christ in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Please be seated. So in this passage, did you see born again? Did you see the new birth? Right in the very center of this passage, it's actually the first action that God takes in this passage, right? So the first three verses are just laying the groundwork, setting a, a pretty bleak picture and a, and a miserable scene. But then God's activity breaks in beginning in verse 4. But God, these, these, this wonderful, gracious interjection and an interruption to what was going on, but God made us alive there it is we we were dead but we were made alive we've been born again now there's lots here that i think will help us and here's how we're going to tackle it first we're going to look at verses one through three and this is again that foundation for for why we need a new birth in the first place, why we need, why we must be born again, why it's such a big deal. And then we'll move into the second half of the passage and explore some of the, the what it means to be born again. All right, so back to square one, the reason that the new birth is, re- is required, the reason that we have to be given life, the reason we have to be born again is because our condition starting out is not one of life, but of death. You were dead. I was dead. Now, right off the bat, here's one of those first places where I'm going to have to be patient because there's a lot that needs to be teased out about this is death, this is not sickness. This is not even being on your death bed. This is death. But that's more than what this passage has to say about it. Probably next week we're going to Ezekiel and there will be lots more to say about the nature of this death. But for now, let's look at how Paul, here in this letter, explains this death. How were we dead? What was the nature of our death? The nature of our death was that it was in trespasses and sins. 
So the two words are not very different. They're really synonyms, but they convey the totality of what's going on. This, this conscious, willful action that is, in reality, it's treachery. It is treason. And, and see, it's not just one or two oopses. It's not just a few places where we blew it. It's trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And walking is a verb that Paul uses a lot. He uses it here in Ephesians a few times. And it's this great image. It's this great metaphor for living. But I love it because what could be more simple than walking? You take a step and you take another step and another one after that. That's the way in which we were dead in our trespasses and sins. One right after another, every step we took. It's a pattern. This moment-by-moment pattern of your life was to rebel against God. Genesis 6 before the flood, talks about the intention of mankind's heart was only evil all the time. It's a pattern. We chose our own way. And as we are walking in these trespasses and sins, we're, we're doing some following. We're following three different things this passage shows us. The first thing we're following is is the ways of the world, the the course of this world. We are conforming to the world's standard as opposed to God's standard. So there's this external influence. But it's more than just that. It's more than just their pressure on us. second thing we're following is the evil one himself. Y'all, we're following Satan. Now, the way Paul phrases it here is a a little interesting. We're not going to spend a ton of time here, but this this notion of following the prince of the power of the air, y'all, there's some bondage going on here. We're being made to follow. this following, this conforming to the world standard, it's because we're bound to the ruler of the world. To say he's the prince of the power of the air, so so the ancients thought about the air, the space between earth and the heavens as being the realm, being the location of evil spirits. And whether or not that's exactly true, What is true is that when Paul said, hey, you're following, you were following the prince of the power of the air, they knew exactly what he was talking about. Without a doubt, they knew what Paul was talking about. Who Paul was talking about. So this bondage, this this death, we've got to see here, it's spiritual. right? It's obviously obviously not referring to a physical death or else they wouldn't be able to do all these things, right? It's a spiritual death as opposed to physical. We see here it's it's a spirit that is at work here, working in the sons of disobedience. 
And it's not just spiritual, but it's supernatural. This activity that's going on is supernatural. And so these are the little clues as we try to put together the pieces of this puzzle of, well, what does it mean to be born again? Well, why is it necessary? So what's the problem like? So then what must the solution be like? If the problem is spiritual and it's supernatural, then guess what the solution's got to be to meet that problem? The third thing that we're following, you see in verse 3, So we're following, we're conforming to the world standard, we're following, we're bound to the evil one. This third thing, we're living in fleshly passions, we're following the desires of mind and body. So here's the thing, y'all. We're happy. We're happy doing what we're doing. Our desires, our passions are being met and satisfied. So here's an aside for your evangelism. Right? Don't assume your neighbor's misery. Right? Sometimes you meet folks and man, they're struggling and, and they're, you know. But quite often, they're happy as clams. Right? So if we're just offering Jesus as a way to a happy life, they might not need that. They might be plenty happy exactly as they are. They might need to hear some different aspect of why Jesus came and what Jesus offers. That's just an aside. That's free with purchase. following the pattern of the world. They're bound to follow the evil one. They're living for and satisfying the desires of their flesh and mind. And some of you right now are saying, you know what? Mm -hmm. I know some people like this. I know some people exactly like this. Fleshly passions, yep. I know folks like that. Satisfying their desires, it's just disgusting. It's repulsive. Lord, have mercy on those people. And see, you're letting yourself off the hook far too quickly. Because think about this, conforming to the world's standard, being bound to Satan's leading satisfying your mind's desires, y'all, that doesn't necessarily have to appear all that disgusting and repulsive. It can actually appear pretty mainstream. Something as seemingly innocent as pursuing the American dream can check every single one of those boxes. Conforming to the world standard, bound to Satan's leading, satisfying your desires. What if your desire is just to look like you've got it all together? 
What if your desire is just to look like you're the self-made man or woman? Fine, upstanding citizen, a pillar of the community. That could be your desire. That could be the thing that you are pursuing. And that could be your spiritual death. We need to be careful when we let ourselves off the hook too easily. Because the reality that Paul wants to leave us with is that we're all in the same boat. Right? Whoever it was that you were thinking about when you were thinking, yeah, I know some people like that. Well, guess what? Paul begins and ends verse 3. with a bit of shocking news to some of us, right? we're all in the same boat, among whom we all once lived. At the end of the verse, like the rest of mankind. Now you may really want some categories here. You might really want a continuum that you can place yourself on and say, well, I guess I'm a little bit dead, but I'm not as dead as this guy. We're all in the same boat. We're all in the same predicament. We are all, Paul says, children of wrath. Now that one doesn't appear on too many bumper stickers or t-shirts or coffee mugs. But you see, there's a God There's a creator of the universe and everything therein and He's holy and He's righteous and our trespasses and sins, our conforming, our satisfying, our desires, those things have offended His holiness and we deserve to receive His wrath. We deserve it. In fact, it is so, wrath is so appropriate for us that Paul calls us wrath's children. Now notice another little clue here. Another little piece of the puzzle. How is it that we came to be children of wrath? By our very nature. By nature, children of wrath. See, it's not the stuff that we did. Right? It's not that, well, we had a few indiscretions and thereby we became children of, of wrath. No, we have the indiscretions because by nature we're children of wrath. It's passed down from Adam. We inherited our big problem. And our problem is not the stuff that we've done. Our problem is who we are that led us to do that stuff in the first place. Our problem is not that we've got some sins on our record. The problem is that we are sinners. It's who we are. It's our nature that is the problem. And so listen to this. It's our nature that's the problem 
It has to be our nature that is changed in the solution. So, so we're trying to think about, all right, what does it mean to be born again? Why, why is it such a big deal? Why is it a must? What is it and what does it do? Well, we see pretty clearly here part of our problem is our very nature. It's our nature that has to be addressed in the, in the solution. And so when you, when you think about this and when you think about the sum total of everything in these first three verses, the magnitude of it all, we realize pretty quickly some things that we can mark off the list of what, the, of what being born again can't be. It, it can't be turning over a new leaf. It can't be a deeper commitment. It can't be trying harder. It can't be self-discipline. If we're going to be given life where there once was death, it's going to be have, have to be something spiritual and supernatural that changes our very nature. That changes who we are at the core. And that's exactly what God does. So let's move to the second half, verses 4 through 7. He made us alive. There's lots to see here in the outline. I put it under four different headings. The how, the why, the when, and the what of making us alive. All right? How did it come to be? It, it came to be because God, in His character, in His essence, in His nature is rich in mercy, full of mercy. And so, of course, mercy, we've talked about this before, mercy is not getting what you deserve. All right, so in this case, it's, it's, we're going to miss out on that wrath that we had coming to us. That's the mercy of being made alive, being rich in mercy. Rich, rich mercy, that's... It's what we kept seeing in Joshua so often. It's, it's the hallmark. Mercy is the hallmark of this covenant-keeping Lord. Right? His, his, his hesed, his, his steadfast and faithful covenant-keeping love, which brings us now to the why. How did it happen? It, through rich, rich mercy. Why did it happen? What was the motivation? Why would He do such a thing because of the great love with which He loved us. Great love. This is His motivation for God. So loved the world that He gave. But here's the interesting thing. When we think about the great love of God, that's kind of the first place we go to. Is the John 3.16, right? For God so loved, His love was so great that He gave. And we think rightly, we think rightly, that's, that's huge. What could be bigger, what could be greater than Him giving us His Son so that He could die for us? Paying the penalty for our trespasses and sins. What could be greater than that? Well, perhaps it could be argued that Him making us alive when we were dead, so that we could even respond 
to the free offer of what Christ has done in the gospel. How else is it going to benefit us if we don't, if He doesn't? If we couldn't respond to Him in faith? Right? And we're going to get into it more in some other passages, but let me just go ahead and say right now, dead folks don't do a very good job of responding. Right? It's part of their deadness. And so the motivation is, is the Lord's great love with which He loved us, that He made us alive. It's, I, I think Dr. Ferguson might be right. This doctrine is so essential because it paves the way for every other doctrine. For the, the sacrifice of the Son in our place as our substitute. Right? The new birth, being born again, paves the way for our even being able to respond to that and receive it by faith. Right, so how? Rich mercy. Why? Great love. When? When did this happen? When did He make us alive? And this is the second time it gets mentioned in this passage, in these few verses. The second time it's, it's like God saying, hey, pay attention to this. It's as if He knows that we might because of our flesh, want to resist this somehow and think that we participated a little bit, that we contributed in some way to what God was doing. No. When did this happen? When you were dead. In, in all of these passages that we're going to look at, God goes to great lengths to make sure that we fully understand this, that He does this work. And He does it all by Himself without any help from us. Because another thing about dead people is they're not very helpful either. He did this. He did it when we were dead. We are the passive recipients of His work. It doesn't say, look closely, it does not say that we alived ourselves. It doesn't even say that we became alive as if to leave us in some doubt about how it happened. No, it says He made us alive. He's the clear subject of this action and we are the recipients. And so that's probably why at this point Paul just blurts out, right, in the middle of what he's saying, it's by grace you've been saved. And he's going to do it again in a few verses. Right? Mid-thought, it, it breaks up the flow of thought. He's trying to explain this. It's by grace you've been saved. This is, this is the what. It is indeed a gracious salvation. Right, so I've, I've made most mention of, of this action of God of, of making us alive. But if you look carefully, there, there are three actions here. All right, there are three actions here that God takes. Number one, he, he made us alive. Number two, He raised us up. And number three, He seated us. And all three of these are with Christ, which, which is very important for, for our considering of this topic and trying to wrap our head, minds around it. 
Because it's not like these things are just happening to us and we're over in the corner somewhere. Oh, well, isn't that good for him? He's, he's alive now and he used to be dead. No, all these things are pointing us to our new reality, to our new nature, to our new identity, and it's with Christ. Our new relationship is going to be one of being united to Christ, which is very important because that's the only means by which that we can benefit from any of this stuff that He's done is if we're united to Him. Right? We can only benefit from His death if we're united to Him and then we're united to Him in His death. We can only benefit from His resurrection if we're, if we're not united to Him, then it remains His and it's, it's external to us. It's not attached to us at all. But if we're united to Him... His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. His having a place seated in heaven becomes our hope for the future. He's already there and we're united to Him. Our hope and our future is secure. It says in, in these verses, even in the ages to come. So, see y'all, this is a gracious salvation and it's not just grace in the present tense. There's much more grace to come. In ages to come, there's going to be more grace. Which, if you look at the end of verse 7, is exactly God's point. It's exactly His desire is to show off His grace. We're the objects of it for the purpose that He might say, hey, Look what I did. I took dead people. I took folks who deserved nothing but my wrath and displeasure. And look what I did to them and for them and through them. We become His trophies of grace that He can show off, that He can display. And y'all, grace like that ought to humble us deeply and ought to amaze us to the point where we've got nothing left to say. Father, would you do just that as we begin to explore this, this great doctrine, this great uh, part of our holy religion, this idea that has a lot of baggage and a lot of misunderstanding, as we would set out to try to wrap our minds around that, would you help us? But in so doing, would you humble us? And would you leave us constantly amazed at the depth and the beauty of your grace? We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.